0: The very purpose which draws us together here, building a peaceful world, will be thwarted if a situation is accepted in which a government intervenes across its borders in the affairs of another with military force in violation of the United Nations
1: chart.
2: We have to ensure the proper conditions for self-determination so, so that the citizens the of, of Crimea. At the least they remember there is such a thing as international law.
1: And this should be discussed bilaterally between India and Pakistan.
0: This is a test for the United Nations. You are the one who guaranteed the people of Kashmir the right of self-determination.
2: Welcome to the first episode of Article 38, the official podcast from the International Law Society at the School of Diplomacy and International Relations. Before we get into the topics for this episode, I'd like to briefly describe what the International Law Society, uh, which we we for short call ILS, does and our goals for this year. We are a student-led organization tasked with providing a forum for students to learn about critical issues in international law and informing students of careers in the field. Our mission is to relay to all interested parties the historical and ongoing issues in international law, especially those with foreign policy and geopolitical implications. Through our programs, be it informational social media posts, members writing articles or curated events, we hope to realize our mission. Our goal for the 2021 and 2022 session of the International Law Society deals with gaining a better understanding of territorial disputes in the context of international law. We want to know how nations navigate international law to suit their state's position for a particular territorial claim. The way we will go about doing this is getting ambassadors, ministers, or UN mission representatives from nations that have territorial disputes to come on to Article 38 and provide their state's position. An example of this would be highlighting the Crimea issue and getting both the Ukrainian and Russian positions on the dispute. So make sure to subscribe, stay tuned uh, for an exciting project from ILS. So, On to this week's episode. Before we begin to cover specific issues regarding international law and territorial disputes, we at ILS felt it would be important to cover some of the fundamental principles in international law so that our listeners have a better grasp on what issues and principles uh, nations cling to for legitimacy. To do this, we have two professors from the School of Diplomacy and International Relations that cover international law. First, I would like to introduce Professor Philip Mormon, JD, PhD. He is an associate professor whose areas of expertise include public international law, international environmental law, and policy, and peace operations. I've taken his public international law and peacemaking and peacekeeping class, and I thoroughly enjoy them, and I would recommend them to anyone in our program who, or who wishes to join our program. He also has published in the Temple Law Review, the UCLA Journal of International Law and Foreign Affairs, and the Harvard Journal of International Law. He is also the vice president of the American branch of International Law Association and serves on its executive committee. And he was the previous faculty advisor for ILS. Next is a professor who is currently teaching me international environmental law and policy, Catherine Tinker, JD and JSD. Professor Tinker is the first distinguished fellow for the Center for UN and Global Governance Studies. She is the founder and president of an NGO accredited to ECOSOC at the United Nations, the Tinker Institute on International Law and Organizations, and regularly participates in summits, preparatory committees, and working groups on sustainable development and international law at the UN. Dr. Tinker also serves on the International Union for the Conservation for Nature World Council on Environmental Law based in Switzerland as an expert. So, welcome to the podcast. Professor Mormon and Professor Tinker.
1: Hello, Ahmad. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you.
2: Yes,
0: Ahmad, thank you for asking us, and we're looking forward to this event.
2: So we're glad to have you guys here, so let's dive into the topics. Now, let's begin with the history for the formulation for international law. We know from history or just watching documentaries and movies that laws amongst different nations, kings, and leaders were not respected at all times. The idea that comes to my mind is a diplomat or envoy is sent by one ruler to another ruler and the messenger's head comes back in a box. Or in the case of a dispute between two rulers, power through force is the arbitrator, the idea that one king wants a piece of land and he goes off and fights for it and he takes it. So how did we go from that being the method of interaction to the concept of international community where established rules and norms impact state behavior?
0: Well, I thought I'd start with two examples. You mentioned the head in the box of the messenger. Actually, diplomatic immunity was one of the first international legal principles actually observed between monarchs and emperors, agreed to for various reasons, practical reasons of mutuality and the necessity of having an envoy deliver important messages from one ruler to another. This might trigger a war, avoid a war, or arrange a royal marriage. You may have heard the phrase, don't kill the messenger. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, initially, this was done out of comedy or courtesy, something like do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Of course, it didn't always work. Uh, Eventually, rulers entered into treaties or customary law acceptance of the idea. And finally, in 1961, there's a multilateral treaty on diplomatic relations. This is an example of how international law grows from a practical step to a universal law. And one other, the second great example, is the custom of allowing small fishing boats to continue to fish safely, even during a declared war. It's called, in the phrase is, exempt from capture as a prize of war. So back in 1403, the King of England and the King of France agreed on this between themselves. So it's a bilateral treaty. This practice gradually became a norm of international law, customary law, binding on other states as well. 500 years later, fast forward, it was even recognized by the US Supreme Court as binding customary international law in the case of the Paquete Habana in 1900.
2: So what you've described here tells me that the sources of international law are important. And I think they're, as I've taken public international law, they showcase to me the importance, the sources that nations cling to for their own legitimacy or defining why they think it's right. And so this is why I want to cover this before we get into the international territorial disputes themselves.
1: Thanks, Ahmad. Yeah, I think the idea of sources is is really important in international law as as a basic area for understanding. And the reason for that is how do we think about where international law comes from? because in the national context, in the United States, for example, it's pretty clear where the law comes from. The law is made by the government, either the legislature or the executive through regulations or the courts coming out with a legal rule, but we don't really have fully developed executive or uh, judicial or legislative functions in the international sphere. So how do we start thinking about where those rules come from or where do we look to find those rules? And over time, international scholars and lawyers and international courts, statesmen, stateswomen, have come up with this idea of sources. I'll start out talking about some of the sources, and I think then Dr. Tinker is going to continue. But I think most people would identify treaties and conventions right off as a source of international law rules. And some of them may be bilateral, but there are a lot of multilateral treaties whose purpose really is to set out the rules of behavior for many, many states. So international law is created that way. International law is also created through customary law, which Dr. Tinker alluded to earlier. And the idea of custom, just I'll talk about the basic idea and then I'll talk about some uh, more of the specifics. But the basic idea is that states will engage in practice, they'll engage in behavior, and over time, that behavior will develop a kind of consistency, um, and at some point, that behavior, that state practice develops into a rule, or at least states and other entities consider that practice to have developed into a rule. So it's, it's, it's as if somebody came from Mars and was examining what states are doing over time, um, and at some point, that Martian might identify a consistency of behavior and could say, aha, there's a guideline, there's a legal rule that these states have adopted. Strictly speaking, there are two elements to custom, that is state practice, what they do, and then a sense of that states are doing this out of a a legal obligation, that this practice has developed into a legal rule. And so international lawyers look to those two components when thinking about whether a rule has become custom. But what you guys need to know, I think, is there's this state practice, And at some point, it becomes transferred into a binding legal rule on all states.
2: Ripening, I think, is one of the terms you use in class is this idea ripens and becomes a law.
0: To just add to something that Professor Mormon laid out, um, which was a really good introduction to how to get a handle on the sources because we have to know where to look to find the law. And those are the two most significant, the primary sources of international law. But there's one small but very, very important category that's different from everything else because a treaty or customary law could be on any subject as long as there's state consent to be bound. But in one area, it's called use cogens, or use cogens norms. And these are rules that are so significant, no state can opt out. So your state can't make a treaty with my state and agree to violate one of these kinds of very special rules. But there aren't very many of them, and they're very broad, but they relate to something that you were asking us about later on we'll discuss. They are including piracy, slavery, torture, crimes against humanity, and, in the 20th century, genocide. Some writers have called these super customary laws fundamental law based on morality or justice. And now these norms are part of the Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court. So that is still a significant aspect of these primary sources of international law. Soft law is a secondary source, right? And if I may for just a moment explain what that means, because it's used in practice all the time. When you talked about... um, something ripening into customary law, Mm -hmm. right? What did it ripen from? The seed can be considered soft law.
2: Okay.
0: And so a U.N. declaration, a a final document from a conference, a multilateral conference, could then become eventually, it's non-binding at that time, scholars write about it, publish on it, discuss it. Judges refer to that in their decisions and judgments. But it isn't necessarily legally binding. It's aspirational. What states should do, what we think international law should be, but it's not legally binding yet.
1: And if I could just add one uh, little aspect to that, norms that are considered soft law, often not only can they germinate into... (laughs) rules of international law, but they often are seen to have some kind of guiding function as well, that they have some normative function Mm -hmm. so provide some kind of guidelines for behavior, even if they're not, strictly speaking, legally binding on states.
0: Absolutely. And they're very, very often the basis for policy, policy adopted on a global level or within nation states. Absolutely. Okay,
2: so from these ideas of the sources and the early developments of international law, I want to move on to the idea of the state. And before we get to the UN Charter and the ideas of the state present there, I just want to get to the earlier ideas of the state from you guys.
1: All right, I think there are several definitions of of states. Obviously, a state consists of, of territory, but there are... In international law, there are two theories about understanding when an entity, when a territory becomes actually a state, legally speaking, in international law. The theory that was dominant about 100 years ago was called the constitutive theory. I don't think you need to know these terms, just maybe the distinctions between them. But under the constitutive theory, the idea was that an entity was not a state until it was recognized as a state by enough countries. So essentially, you couldn't be a member of the club unless you were admitted by the existing club members. And in the earlier part of the 20th century, that gave way. There was resistance, as you can imagine, from developing countries who resented kind of the old boys' network of this club approach. And there developed another approach called the declaratory approach. That was that states should be considered objectively, or the existence of a state, should be considered objectively according to certain criteria. And um, a handy reference point for that criteria is in the Montevideo Convention of 1933 among American states, which has been considered to become reflective of customary law today. And those criteria are permanent population, a defined territory, a government, and I think partly what that means is a government that exercises effective control over that territory, and a capacity to enter into relations with other states. The declaratory approach has become the dominant approach in international law, but it's hard to avoid elements of the constitutive approach in some circumstances. So for example, there are some entities that might not meet all of those criteria that I just laid out that are often still considered states. Perhaps they're super small. Or they don't really have much territory, or really they don't have a permanent population. And I'm thinking as an example of the Vatican, which has historically acted as a state, has been treated as a state, and still and is still treated essentially as a state or a state-like in international relations. And we can think of other uh, examples of that. And so, kind of recognition is has is relevant there. It's also relevant in the case of some entities that are emerging not very many other states recognize whatsoever they may have the elements of statehood but they're just not recognized by states in, so that they don't they can't operate effectively in the international arena and so the turkish republic of northern cyprus would be an example where it's only recognized by two or three states palestine is still an example where it is not recognized officially by by that many states, and so and, and so on. Uh, so there are these two different theories, the declaratory theory, the objective theory is the dominant one, but there are still elements of recognition that can make a difference in when we think about what constitutes a state.
0: Well, and I'd like to just ask to think about why does it really matter? What's it mean to say you're recognized as a state? Many practical things depend on this, to be able to enter into contracts, to hire people, to buy or rent space to operate out of, and to take a seat at the United Nations. And it's a question not only of recognition of state, but recognition of government. Whose delegation is going to sit in that chair? And that is something that comes to play in cases, for example, in Venezuela, uh, after an election that was contested whose representative was going to actually get to be acknowledged and recognized at the UN and cast a vote. So these things do matter. And for any new state or a new regime, it's really important to be recognized by other states. It's a legitimacy.
2: So on the opposite spectrum of international law, we delve into a realist world. And I wanted to just say a quote that... Kind of hits back at this idea of state under international law, and it's by Mr. Oppenheim, and it goes like this, there exists perhaps no conception of the the meaning of which is more controversial than that of sovereignty. It is indisputable fact that this conception, from the moment when it was introduced into political science until the present day, has never had a meaning which was universally agreed upon. This kind of gives an authority to dispute the idea of state sovereignty that we're going to run into in many of the upcoming podcasts when we begin to discuss the territorial disputes. But I want to move forward to how then all of the ideas that you guys talked about of the state and the definitions going into what you, Professor Tinker, last pointed at was this UN idea, wanting to be recognized. And so I want to move towards what is in the United Nations and how do the articles and the formulation of the UN kind of justify the idea of state and what gives this state its sovereignty and its rights.
1: Thanks, Ahmad. I think I would just like to say, I'd just like to give a thumbnail definition, a working definition of sovereignty, if I might, just to ground the discussion a little bit. I think a basic definition that doesn't cover everything, but a basic definition is the idea that sovereignty is the authority that states have over their territory and their people within that territory without outside interference from other, from other states. In terms of the role of sovereignty in the UN Charter, I think one role, and sovereignty does play a, a big role in the Charter, in fact, Article 2.7 says that nothing in the Charter authorizes the U.N. or other states, really, to intervene in matters within the domestic jurisdiction of any state, with one exception we'll come to later. And one reason for that, I think, one reason that sovereignty has such a, a primary place in the Charter as a, is as a mechanism for the contribution of peace, because if states and the UN aren't allowed to interfere with the internal affairs of another state, that reduces opportunities for conflict, for tension between states. And we can think about this in terms of World War II when Germany on many occasions interfered in neighboring states, Austria, Czechoslovakia, in fact, effectively invaded those states. And so a norm under which states respect sovereignty can be a norm uh, for reflecting peace or for maintaining peace. And I think that's one reason why it's there. Just as a side note, if we think about the Treaty of Westphalia, the treaty that established or supposedly established the system of sovereign states in 1648, ending the uh, Thirty Years' War, the role of sovereignty played a role in that treaty as well, its debut, in fact. But its role in that treaty was clearly as a mechanism to maintain peace. And I think its role in the charter was intended to serve a similar function.
0: And it was actually states who adopted the charter, drafted it in 1945, and adopted the UN charter. And who wrote that? The victorious allies after World War II, determined to avoid the scourge of war at the beginning in the preamble of the charter, which also refers to we, the peoples of the world united, but it is member states who have the right to vote at the UN.
2: And I just want to point at two articles in, in the UN Charter, Article 2-3, which says, all members shall settle their international disputes by peaceful means in such a manner that international peace and security and justice are not endangered. And, and why is that important? When we talk about territorial disputes in our upcoming podcast, one of the main issues that I see in territorial disputes is more often than not, it's through the use of force that they get settled. And I want to present this podcast as an opportunity to showcase that there might be avenues in international laws to mitigate and to comply with this Article Two Three of settling international disputes about peaceful means. And another important article I want to let All those listeners know about is Article 2 4 in the UN Charter, which says all members shall refrain in their international relations from the threat or use of force against the territorial integrity or political independence of any state, or in any other manner inconsistent with the purposes of the United Nations. And this goes back to the idea that more often than not states are using force. When I look at Nagorno Karabakh, Crimea, Palestine or Kashmir, all of these territorial disputes in one form or another, power is ultimately used. And then there's also this weird area that you get into territorial disputes where a territory isn't defined when two states say that a territory is theirs. And so now if you put troops into one territory that is a disputed territory, did you technically infringe upon the sovereignty of that one nation? You get into this really awkward position in international law, and it's something that I I hope that we are going to go on to solve throughout this entire podcast series. But now I just want to close off with the two important uh, distinctions of the use of force in international law. And we learned about this in, in class with you, Professor Mormon, about one of the two instances that force is allowed.
1: Yeah, Under the Charter, the Charter, as Ahmad said in Article 2.4, prohibits the use of force. But there are two exceptions. One is the exception for self-defense, where there is an armed attack against a state. A state can use self-defense or use force to repel that attack. And then also when the Security Council authorizes the use of force, when it authorizes or when when it engages in its uh, functions to maintain international peace and security. When there is an invasion of another country or use of force against another country, the security architecture of the United Nations, of the Security Council, jumps into action, and the Security Council can then authorize states, member states, to use force to repel that invader, resist that use of force, and restore peace and security in the relevant region. So those two exceptions, there's one other kind of implicit exception in the Charter, that's, that is that where states consent to the use of force on their territory, then it would be allowed. And then there have been one or two exceptions that have grown up since the Charter. Their status as international law is really disputed, and the major exception is this two related ideas of humanitarian intervention and responsibility to protect. That is that when a state engages in severe, significant human rights violations against its own population, that then other states may have the right or even perhaps the some sort of obligation to intervene. And that intervention can take various forms. It doesn't necessarily have to involve the use of force, but that it can, under these doctrines, involve the use of force to protect these civilians from the depredations of their, of their state. Again, there is quite a bit of dispute about the status of those two related doctrines as customary or as international law, but they have gained currency in the last uh, 40 years or so.
0: Right, and I'd just like to note, in the face of so many wars and so much suffering, In the 75 years of the existence of the United Nations, we have not had a World War III yet, and that is the idea. And I think that shows when we're talking about uh, use of force and humanitarian intervention, we should talk about humanitarian relief because that's a function the U.N. does really well that helps alleviate some of the terrible consequences of conflict, of non-peaceful means. Of resolution of disputes, and so just to acknowledge that, and I'd like to say then in conclusion that it is the creation of multilateralism through international organizations and the body of international law principles from the sources that we've suggested to you today and outlined, with respect for human rights, dignity, and the rule of law, that will bring us to the achievement of peaceful resolution of disputes.
2: Well. From that, I want to just move on to what are your final thoughts on what we've discussed today regarding the fundamentals of international law?
1: Well, I I would say a couple of related things. One, if we're talking about, I mean, to the the extent to which states comply with international law, that's obviously a big question. But I'd like to start with the statement of a famous international law scholar, Professor Lewis Henkin of Columbia Law School, who famously said that most states follow most international law most of the time. And and that statement has become generally accepted, but I would raise a little question about it, and that is because most of the time, most of the international law that states have agreed to and they're following is pretty bread-and-butter stuff, right? We're talking about conventions, ab- about the delivery of mail, about telephone lines. Basic, conventions that really deal with sort of straightforward coordination among among states. And it's when, however, that national interest, especially national security, bumps up against international law or ideas about international law. That's where the rubber really hits the road. Uh, and I think both of us would probably argue that international law pra- plays a role even in those contexts, that it does constrain the behavior of states. But I think I would say that international law has a little less purchase in those contexts, but that's what makes international law interesting, the interplay between politics and law.
0: Yes. And that might sum up what we think of diplomacy, right? Right? Because having these international laws there as a framework or an aspiration, whichever way you want to look at it, allows states to talk about things together, to have a dialogue, to have a discussion. And to have a forum where they can go for those discussions.
1: And to have a common vocabulary.
0: Exactly. Right. So even if a state is not in full compliance, they're doing something or they think they should be or need to do something. And find a way to explain why what they've actually done does fit those principles. The other state may not agree, but then that goes on to another stage of dialogue. Yeah. What comes to my mind from that quote is
2: UN clause, the UN convention on the Law of the Seas, which the United States has not ratified, but it follows. And it also refers to it when other countries violated and China kind of comes to mind regarding that. All of the information uh, in this podcast is going to be really helpful for us moving forward. I find the understanding of these sources and particularly crucial because they are the exact instruments that states will utilize to say why a certain position is legitimate regarding a territorial dispute. One state may interpret an action by another as a breach of a treaty, while another might not. This conundrum in international law and, and how states use it will be exactly what we at ILS attempt to unravel this upcoming year with the Article 38 podcast series. Well, professors, thank you for coming on today. It was a real pleasure. Thank you, Amon. Well,
0: thank you, and good luck on your project.
2: This is all the time we have. Make sure to subscribe and follow us on Instagram. LinkedIn, and Twitter, and have a good day.